So like I said last time, not really a lot of memories from this point out for the rest of Season 1. So imagine my surprise when this turned out to be a moderately decent episode. What's really weird is I was, I was starting to take notes about why I felt the mystery wasn't working. And as I started doing so, I realized that the mystery was working okay-ish. I still don't think this is a particularly memorable episode. It's just, it kind of was decently, competently executed. So we got a ghost ship. A, the episode sits on the strength of two points, mystery and romance, which, if you think about it, those two things tied together work very well. The mystery is surprisingly well foreshadowed. My personal favorite bit of foreshadowing is the fact that people would just kind of jump in. You know, they'd be like, hey, here's a person, and there's no sound. In fact, in many cases, they would pop in in places that seemingly had no place for them to show up at. And they did that kind of quietly at first and more overtly by the time they were going after T'Pol towards the two-thirds mark of the episode. But they did little little other things here and there, too. So I'm kind of with it. The romance angle, you're probably expecting me to bash the romance of the week. You'd be wrong. The only thing I really dislike about this is she never shows up again ever. She is a one-off character, and that's the end of it. It would have been kind of nice to have her be mentioned in the future. Maybe she keeps a correspondence with Tucker. Maybe she actually shows up in a future episode. I mean, there's plenty of options there even though I only lifted to two. But there are plenty of options there. And they decided to go with, nah, she's gone, screw it. One-off episode. Which is weird, because Enterprise really has been trying to push the TNG level of continuity with the Voyager level of storytelling, which is an interesting dynamic. It's, it's a shame they didn't try to have, you know, continuity in Voyager, but whatever. <clears throat> but I'm also dancing around a specific point, and that is Renée Bergenois. This is, uh, I do believe, the first episode I have recorded, yeah, no, I'm, I'm right, uh, since he died. Because I, I finished TNG and DS9, you know, oh, forever ago, back in 2019, as far as from a recording perspective. So, that sucks. I know, I know that sounds so deep, and, but, I mean, it does, it sucks, his passing sucks. I did a little looking into it just for the hell of it, just because I was curious. Turns out, so most people don't keep records on when things happen from a production standpoint, which makes sense. Nobody really cares when you when you film or when you, you know, do voice acting work or whatever, right? I mean, you'd have to be a total geek to actually care about such minutia. So, I'm not exactly sure, but based on release time. There's this something, I don't know if it's a film or a movie or a show or whatever, called Cortex, which he starred in, which isn't even out yet as of this recording. There's also something else, which I'm still not sure if it's a show or a movie, called First Cow, which he is in. But before both of those, so that's that's his last two works before he passed away. But before both of those, there was one other thing. It's the third last thing he ever worked on. And that would be Star Trek Online playing Odo. At first, I was thinking Star Trek Online was actually his last credit. And it may have been because of, like I said, production versus actual released schedule. But nevertheless, 
even if we are going by just release schedule, Star Trek Online was the third last thing he ever did for Victory is Life, which is something I've actually covered on this channel. And by channel, I mean show, because it's not part of this YouTube cycle. It's over on the, the streaming side of things. I don't have anything big or profound to share here. It sucks. Moving on. So, <clears throat> they find uh, this random trader, and they're like, hey, let's trade and stuff. First of all, I do like that. I like that little inclusion. It's something I feel Voyager should have had more of. Interaction. Mercantile interaction. Now, yes, I'm an eco economics geek, so obviously I want more of that. But ignoring my own personal predilections on the matter, the fact is, trading for supplies is the kind of thing that you'd think would be really normal on any starship that is not in regular contact with a star dock. Right? And so Enterprise being way out here on their own and without any real resupply unless they go back to Earth, of course they're going to trade for stuff. So I like that. I also like uh, the little bit with the spice. If I can go into a sidebar for a second here. I've always found food to be one of the most fascinating ways to develop other cultures. Of course, I mean other species, but as we've discussed before, alien species are really just other cultures. Because <laughs> if you get to really alien, then you, then you get to something that's completely different. So alien spice is the kind of thing that actually fascinates me, because spice is all about flavor and about uh, preparation, you know, how spice interacts with the chemical interactions of cooking, as well as, of course... Uh, preservation, you know, making sure that food can retain good or at least be palatable for a longer period of time than it otherwise would. Just just some cool ideas and cool concepts there, and a lot you can me mess with. So here we find out that they have this, uh, what was it, uh, Hajaran, can't read my own handwriting, spice, which is apparently incredibly spicy, which makes me start thinking, like, why is it so spicy? It, you know, how is it that they deal with it? I mean, we here on Earth have incredibly spicy things, ghost peppers, but most of those spicy things are usually mixed with something else, or they are part of a complement of another flavor, so forth and so on. Like how even a habanero salsa, for example, which is fairly damn spicy, is something that has tons of other stuff mixed into it in order to dilute the spice. So instead of just heat, what you have is flavor. So why is this thing so spicy? It just got me thinking. Um... In my own setting, there are these pseudo-Earth elemental creatures called Tygians, and, uh, or Tygians. I've never decided how to pronounce it. It's my own setting. I haven't even decided how to pronounce it. Uh, I'll, I'll come up with a codified thing someday. But anyways, <clears throat> some of you who ever followed the Primus thing may recognize that Guido actually played one of those. And I had a concept. It was, uh, it was this sort of rock salt that they had, which was incredibly caustic and acidic, to flesh, you know, to normal people, to the point where eating it would be physically dangerous. But it adds a wonderful flavor when used properly for them and their food. I also did some stuff with the trolls, who also exemplified extreme tastes, tons of sugar or tons of bitterness or tons of spice. And so they actually were in favor of heat because there's this whole cultural thing they had going on with unless you're really feeling it, it's not worth your time. So even though they don't actually enjoy the flavor, they do it anyways because it makes them seem elevated in their own cultural status. You know, it's kind of a uh, 
fluffing up their feathers, their plumage kind of a thing, metaphorically speaking, and so forth and so on. And I just share this stuff because this is the kind of things I think of when I see something in a Star Trek show where there's this spice that is incredibly spicy and they're trying to trade for. They also mention exotic goods, the guys trading in exotic goods. That got me thinking, too, because what they need is something more hardcore. Uh, That's the wrong word. They need... I don't actually remember the economic term for it. So exotic goods has a lot of value. Er, Value when it comes to a merchant. Not because they can sell for a lot, although that is part of it, but because exotic goods are usually easier to transport. If you have to trade in iron ingots or silk, you, you can already see kind of the difference between the approach here. If you're trading in, you know, chunks of coal or, you know, exotic artifacts or rare spices or whatever, you can already see the differences when it comes to the actual tangible act of transporting and trading. And, of course, it's very valuable because it's either very rare or very uh, well sought after. It has high perceived value. It has high literal value, depending. So... You can see how we have this situation where exotic uh, exotic goods would be more preferable to someone like him. He apparently does trade in other goods as well, but he mentions that he doesn't really deal with engineering kind of goods. You know, bulk goods would be a good term for that. It's not the term I was thinking of earlier, but it works. I'm going to have like five comments down below saying, it's just this, Lord God. But that kind of, it's just interesting. It's just a tiny little character point. It's this one scene with this guy. And he goes ahead and trades them the information on this ghost ship, which they might be able to salvage. Huh. So, they decide to go salvage this sucker. Three odds. God, I'm not, I don't feel tired. It's just because I'm talking a lot. See, I have trouble breathing uh, since my nose is wrong. I deviated septum, etc. So, if you ever see me yawn a lot during these, it's because I'm literally having trouble breathing and I need a moment to just get some air. Anywho, at least that's what I was told. I don't actually know how true that is. So, they have no power readings. Okay, that's later explained by a dampening field. That doesn't quite explain how... You know what, let's just move on. Travis mentions they don't want a grave rob. Okay, that's kind of an interesting concept. You could do an entire episode about the dilemma of grave robbery. Oh, really? Think about it for a second. Because grave robbing, grave robbing is something that's almost always considered to be really, really bad. Now, in real life history, several times it's been considered bad because A, you know, religious reasons for one way or another, or B, practical reasons. You don't want people digging around a bunch of corpses because there's a whole lot of disease and filth that can come from that, which they can then spread to the rest of the people. So there are practical and intangible reasons to try and enforce a lack of grave robbing. That being said, if you take proper precautions, there's nothing really necessarily wrong from a purely pragmatic reason. And indeed, I mean, they're dead and we need it, so let's take it, right? But at the same time, you could see how that would be considered incredibly disrespectful. And more to the point, it might actually be considered actively wrong, depending on how you think of things. And that concept and that conflict is something that we haven't even settled here in real life on Earth. And many people, I've had discussions about this exact topic, and I've heard both sides of the argument many, many times. 
They, of course, don't argue this at all. Instead, Travis just brings up the topic briefly, and then Tucker points out that they need those supplies. So then they're like, okay, let's go get them. Gosh, it sure would have been nice if, I don't know, Enterprise had gone back to Earth to get resupply and all that extra material, you know, the bulk goods that they need from Earth instead of deciding to turn around after taking tons of damage out here. Come on, guys, this isn't Voyager. You can go home. <sighs> they finally figured out the we-need-to-make-it-work-on-the-fly thing, and they don't need to. Was, is, is, this that, is that what's going on here? Is this the wrong lessons being learned here? It's like, I've got it. We've got to make it so that they have actually have rare resources and they actually need to have, you know, they need to scout, salvage and they need to grave rob and they need to trade. But Earth is right there. Vulcan's right there, too, while we're on the subject. Although, since Vulcan has given a slap on the wrist, maybe they wouldn't be willing to trade at this point. I don't know. <sighs> so, then about ten minutes of episode pass and I didn't write anything down. I almost picked up my Switch. It's right here. I'll, I'll go ahead and prove it to you. I got my Switch right here. And I tend to uh, bring it out when I've got nothing really going on mentally and I need to stay mentally engaged. Otherwise, I just kind of... And I turn into a blob, right? Like, I'm sure you know what I mean by that. And I don't want to turn into a blob, ignoring the fact that I don't enjoy that state. There's also the fact that it's kind of my job to ruminate on these things, to discuss, analyze, and do the best I can. So if I blob out, I don't have anything to say. So I almost pulled it up, but I, I actually taught myself earlier today, no joke, I'm not going to do it today. I'm not going to pull up the switch because I'm going to focus all of my attention on the episode. And I did. And I focused on the episode. I just didn't have anything to say about it. Now, of course, you can disbelieve me here. That's your call. But really, unless I start getting into the nitty-gritty of exactly how they use the cameras in certain scenes, which wasn't exactly spectacular anyways, I have nothing to say about it. Moving on. <clears throat> so. Um, I do like the continuity. They mention the ghost stories back in Strange New Worlds. They mention the incident on Unexpected. That actually makes me wonder a little bit. You notice a lot of the references to previous episodes are either immediate or going back to the original episodes. I wonder if when they were developing these shows, they had someone come through, effectively a script doctor, come through afterwards and just add in references to previous episodes once the episode lineup had been determined. Because a lot of these references are for early on episodes that they were probably pretty sure would happen before this. So that would then imply the opposite of what I'm talking about. I have no idea. I'm just curious because I always find the, the behind-the-scenes aspect fascinating for these shows, which is one of the reasons why it's so damn frustrating that I have so little information on this frickin' show. Do you know? Do you know? I was talking about it this morning in my Discord. See this book? Let me pull out a random episode. Here we go. Wait, that's... This is... What is this? This is The Man Trap. Okay. Now, that may not sound like but this is about a little over a page and, I don't know, like a sixth of another page. 1.2, that's the wrong, I don't know what one-sixth is in percentage. One and one-sixth of a page of information just on that one episode, just from this one book. And I have two other sources I'm going to be checking for TOS when we get there. There is more information on the man trap in just this book 
than I have about this episode, the one we're covering today, in total. This is amazingly frustrating to deal with. But I digress. I should probably stop trying to pad the runtime, but I know you guys hate me if these episodes are shorter than 30 minutes, so I got that problem. I've had several people rather caustically mention that I was better back in the Voyager days when I was in horrific pain and desperately trying to ensure that I was thinking about something, anything other than the pain I was in, which is why I was really doing the Voyager ruminations back in the day. I also uh, was incredibly unprofessional. Uh, half the time I didn't even take notes at all. I would just watch the episode and then talk about it. And I would just kind of meander and ramble about things unrelated, which I suppose I still do that, but I've tried to be much more efficient about what I talk about and have a lot less sections of... <sighs> as I'm talking. I don't know if I succeed or not. Hmm. I have nothing to say about this. The mystery is decently constructed. Um, I do have one thing to say. Annie Wershing plays Liana. That's interesting. She, this was actually her very first acting credit ever. This actually began her career as an actress. She's been in a lot of things since then, a whole bunch. But the one that really caught my eye, the one that I was most familiar with, is she's the actress who plays Tess in The Last of Us, the first one. Think about that. <laughs> Anywho, so, um... God, that's it, isn't it? That's all I have to talk about. The The episode circles around the mystery a bit. The mystery is competently done. It just doesn't interest me. I don't know why. The romance works. As I think I mentioned before, it's kind of a meet-cute. I think the biggest reason the romance works, other than the logic of the situation, because, of course, the first time she encounters an alien guy who looks like Conor Trenere, which probably doesn't hurt anything, she tends to... You know, fall for him. That actually lines up perfectly because it's the first guy she's interacted with uh, in her entire life. So that lines up pretty neatly. I, I don't even want to know what her puberty period was like. Anyways, <clears throat> let's not think about that. What we really want to think about is the fact that it's played so light is part of what makes it work. Half the time, the romance of the weeks don't work for me because they're portrayed as some big deep romantic connection when they're not, or it's just this really crude surface-level thing that's only there because they need a checkbox. This manages to kind of slide in between both of those extremes by being basically just a flirt thing. It's like if you're going out and you happen to go through the grocery store and as you're walking there's this insert gender you're interested in there, and they kind of like, hey, and you just kind of start talking and maybe you go out for coffee or dinner and you just kind of chat, and it's just kind of a light flirty thing. And that works, because that's it. That's the extent of that. And it does provide a bit of a personal connection for one of the characters. It does kind of make things seem a little surface level, but at the same time it also makes them seem surface level in a way that there could have been more, and which is another reason why she should have appeared in future episodes. This is, in short, a decent beginning of an actual relationship. It's just they never go past the beginning part, which is fine within the confines of this episode, and that's why it works for me. It is the first coffee trip visit, right? It's the first time you go out to get a cup of coffee and just chat over breakfast or whatever, right? And you take her out to first watch, and it's like, hey, and you just kind of chat and talk, get to know each other. Just a light flirting thing, nothing big. You don't go home and immediately have sex. <laughs> Unless you're into that. That's, that's, that's your two's decision, of course. But you get where I'm going, coming from on this. 
So that works. The mystery is competent. And then there's this really good scene, and it's the one really good scene in the work where he starts talking about the disaster that led to the destruction of the ship and how he was so negligent that he caused the death of everyone. Or at least that's how he sees it. One of the under, underlying points of the scene is that we're not actually 100% sure if that's the truth or not. He mentions that he should have stayed at his station, but that's out of a sense of duty, not actually real factual data. Because it's entirely possible that if he had stayed at his station, all that would have happened is his daughter would be dead along with the rest of them. Right? He doesn't know that. And he's had 20 years to feel terrible about that. And that kind of helps with the scene. And the other thing that helps with the scene is René Bergenois is awesome. He does a great job carrying the gravity of the weight of the guilt he's portraying. And his performance is really what sells the role. He also has a nice line earlier. I've made all the friends I need. Ha ha. So then he decides to go ahead and set up the ship as, as far as getting out. And that leads to the second great scene, which is also his, of course it is, where he just starts, he, he basically uses Archer as a sounding board. Archer might as well not even be there. It's like, oh God, I, I, I'm comfortable there. I don't want to leave. Everything's fine. I've, it's my home and I've gotten accustomed to it. And the way he talks about it is that wonderful slice of I'm comfortable but I'm not sure if I'm actually happy. Also, by the way, the episode makes a point in an episode of significantly about holograms and holograms being considered real. They also mention that survival is insufficient. I don't know if that was intentional, but nice touch. But the point is, there's survival, which is insufficient. There's living, which is awesome. But there's a very rarely talked about in-between, which I like to call existence. Existence is fine. You're not at the worst ends of your, your thing. You're not desperately trying to make sure you're living paycheck to paycheck. You're not worried about being, you know, kicked out of your apartment or your home any month now. You're not worrying what you're going to eat tomorrow because you're not 100% sure if you can afford food. No, you're fine. Your bills are paid and you've got your place and everything's cool. But you're not living yet, but you're better than surviving. This is what he so accurately describes when he talks about how he's comfortable. How everything's just kind of fine on the ship. And he's okay with that. Of course he is. He's been there for 20 years. He's basically in the twilight of his life. At this point, he's probably good to retire there. If it was just him, it is, of course, the thought of his daughter that actually encourages him to try and push forward so that she has the opportunity to decide what her life is going to be and actually have a chance at living. Because while there's no shame, survival is insufficient, and I will never budge on that point. But there's no shame in existing. And many people, this sounds bad, but many people settle for existing, because why not? Living's hard and not always available. So if you manage to make it up to existing, that is a lot better than surviving. This episode was weird. I don't have much to say about it, as I feel I've already mentioned. But the fi the finale really helped work for it. And I think, and this is going to sound so pathetic, I think one of the biggest reasons why the finale really worked for me is because of René Bergerois. He's barely noticed. He's barely part of the early parts of the episode. He's just kind of a, a tertiary character. 
but we know who the actor is and we recognize him immediately and so the attempts at mystery regarding his role in things don't really work. I think the episode should have gone heavy on him being a major character earlier because when it does in the latter parts of the episode, it shines. And in no small part thanks to the man himself, if you'll forgive me. I would like to take a moment of silence to recognize Renée Bergeron. 